This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Yes, well, good evening. Um, I'm going to talk about Dilgo Kense Rinpoche. Uh, that's a picture of him there. Um, he was born in um, 1910 and he died in 1991. So his life spanned most of the 20th century. He's being described as uncompromisingly having lived and breathed the Buddhist teachings. He was a high-ranking Nyingmapa Lama who was forced to flee Tibet in 1959, which is when he met Sangharachita. And like many of the figures on the refuge tree, he was non-sectarian in his approach. The Nyingmapas are the um, oldest school of Tibetan Buddhism and they're um, quite flexible. They embrace uh, yogis, monks and married lamas and lay people. So they, uh, they're not as nearly as systematized, say, as the Gulupas, which um, the da- uh, Dalai Lama is a Gulupa and uh, Dada Rinpoche, we heard, some of you heard about the other week, is a, a Gulupa. So the Nyingmapas are, um, besides being the oldest school of Tibetan Buddhism, they're, um, they're quite flexible in that they embrace a, a wide range of people and ways of practicing. Um, yes, yeah, so in this talk, I'm going to give um, a brief biography of Dilgo Kense Rinpoche's life. I'm going to talk a little bit about his connection with Sangharachita. And um, the final part of the talk will be um, more like a reflection on some of his teachings. Uh, so he's another of um, Sangharachita's teachers who was born in Kham in eastern Tibet. Um, and he was the fourth son of the Dilgo family, which could trace its descent from the great 9th century king of Tibet, Trisong Jetson. And some of you may know that the Tibetans are really keen on sort of lineage and tracing lines of descent. So um, Dilgo comes from quite a sort of aristocratic family in that his lineage goes right back through, through um, 10 centuries. Um, and the family were wealthy. Um, even before his birth, a great lama, Mipam Rinpoche, took an interest in, in the boy and shortly after his birth blessed him with a Manjushri empowerment ceremony. And, he, and at this ceremony, uh, the lama said, Throughout all your future lives, I will take care of you. Dilgo Kense has said subsequently that he felt this blessing, which happened when he was just a tiny baby a few weeks old, was the single most important event in his life. So when he was a year old, he was recognised as an emanation of Jamyang Kense Wangpo, who was one of the great 19th century Tibetan teachers. Um, yeah. And this Jamyang Kense here, who's another Bhante's teaching teachers, is another emanation of this 19th century Jamyang Kense. It all gets a bit confusing, particularly when they have very similar names. 
anyway, uh, it's sort of by the way in a way, but uh, yes. But uh, so as, at a year old, he was recognised as a as an emanation of this great uh, teacher, 19th century teacher. But it wasn't made public because it was thought it might create obstacles for Dilgo Kense. Also, his father wanted a son to look after his estates, and he'd already got three sons who had become monks. So this, his fourth son, he didn't want to become a lama. Uh, So um, things sort of carried on like that for some years. But when he was 10, he was burnt in some soup. uh, I'll just uh, go into this a bit. It's a rather nice um, snapshot of... Tibetan rural life, very similar to rural life in in this country or anywhere. So summer on the estate was the busiest time of the agricultural year, during which the the family employed many workers. So so to feed all these workers, uh, they made huge quantities of soup uh, in great cauldrons. So um, you can imagine all these workers sort of coming to the area and all this sort of work and cooking and so on. So Dilgo Kense one day was just playing around with his brother and he fell into a cauldron of boiling soup. So the lower half of his body was so badly scalded that he was ill in bed for many months and he didn't seem to be getting better. So in desperation, his father asked him what would help him get better. Dilgo had always wanted to be a monk So he said wearing monk's robes robes would help him to get better. Uh, So his father allowed that to happen and his health improved from that point on. And from then on, this is at the age of 10, he trained as a Buddhist monk and studied at Shichen Monastery, which is in eastern Tibet. And um, he did that for two or three years and or four years, and then he went in solitary retreat, into solitary retreat in a cave. Um, so I'm just going to uh, read you what he wrote when he was 13. My dearest parents, you gave me birth with all the freedoms and advantages of human life. And you have cared for me with love from my infancy till now. Since you introduced me to an authentic teacher, it is thanks to your kindness that I have encountered the path of liberation. After hearing, thinking about and meditating on the life of my perfect teacher, I have resolved to slip quietly away from all this life's concerns and roam through empty, uninhabited valleys. Father and mother, stay in your handsome lofty house. I, your young son, long instead for empty caves. Thank you for the fine soft clothes you gave me, yet I don't need them. I would rather dress in plain white felt. I leave my valuable belongings behind. A begging bowl, a staff and dharma robes are all I need. I've cast aside this luxury and wealth with no regrets. A handbook of profound advice is all I wish to collect. I leave this garden full of splendid flowers 
and head for the wilderness of overhanging cliffs alone. I need no attendants who just fuel anger and attachment. Birds and wild animals are the only company I long for. Earlier, in the presence of my sovereign teacher, as he bestowed the secret heart essence empowerment, I vowed to abandon all the activities of this life and practice in accordance with the Dharma. In my heart, that promise is as clear as if engraved in stone. I cannot but leave for a secluded mountain retreat. Although for now your sun will hide away in mountain glens, your smiling faces will be, always with, will be with me always. Nor shall I forget your loving care. And if I reach the citadel of experience and realization, I shall repay your kindness. Of that you can be sure. So he wrote that at the age of 13 years. Um, hard to imagine thinking of 13-year-old boys today, but um, yes. Uh, yes, so um, he'd studied uh, with his first teacher who died when he was 15, um, and then he spent the next 13 years in silent retreat. Um, just uh, living in a cave um, and following a very simple routine, very much like the, um, the poem that I just read uh, describes. Um, he practiced from the early hours, I practiced from the early hours before dawn until noon and from afternoon until late into the night. At midday, I read from my books, reciting the texts aloud to learn them by heart. I lived in the cave at Cliff Hermitage without coming out of retreat for seven years. I was 16 when I started that retreat. I sat all the time in a four-sided wooden box, occasionally stretching my legs out. Shedra, my elder brother, who was my retreat teacher, um, told me that unless I sometimes took a walk outside, I might end up deranged, but I felt not the slightest wish to go out. So you do get a sense of someone who is extremely committed and wholehearted about his practice from a very early age. But um, towards the end of his uh, solitary retreat, he became seriously ill and the unanimous opinion of his teacher and other lamas was that he needed a consort um, because he'd been recognised as a turton, um, which is um, another very Tibetan um, thing. Uh, a turton is somebody who uh, reveals the hidden treasures of, of Padmasambhava. Um, yeah, you can ask about it in your groups. Um, yeah, anyway, so um, in order to, for, for Dilgo Kensei at this point, having spent these years in, in very um, committed solitary retreat, in order for him to progress, uh, he was advised that he needed a consort. Um, 
and in order to fully realise his, his full um, spiritual potential. And as I've said, this is something that was uh, recognised in the um, Nyingma Pa tradition where you quite frequently get um, very highly developed married lamas. So he um, married Lamo, a girl from a farming family, who actually was just sort of told to go up and see him pretty much. Um, and that was it, really. Um, and from then on, his health improved, and he had uh, a number of very uh, significant visions and um, connected with, with a number of sort of mind treasures um, and, and very important teachings. Um, he and his consort had two girls. Um, they, they didn't all live together. The, the, his uh, wife lived sort of in a hut fairly nearby. Um, yes, and Dilgo Kense was a very great scholar, so he was constantly reading and um, studying and writing. And uh, the walls of his cave, I think, were sort of lined with books that he acquired over time. So he completed his retreat at the age of 28 um, and then spent many years with his second main teacher, who is um, this man here, Jamyang Kensei Chucky Lodro. And um, Dilgo Kensei told his teacher, this teacher, that he wanted to spend the rest of his life in solitary meditation. But um, Jamyan Kensei insisted that he taught um, and uh, passed on all that he'd realised. So from then on, so this is um, in his sort of 30s, he just taught the Dharma for the rest of his life in a very um, wholehearted and kindly way. Um, yes. So in 1959, obviously, um, well, world events, lots of events in Tibet um, changed the course of his life. So he was, by that time, very well established in Tibet as a, as a great lama and a great teacher. Um, but in 1959, the Chinese invaded Tibet. Dilgo was 49 at this point. And the family estates in Kham were confiscated by the Chinese. So Rinpoche and his family only just escaped to Bhutan. They arrived penniless in Sikkim. Um, and, uh, sorry, no, they just escaped to Bhutan. And the account of his journey from the Chinese... It was really a very touch and go. They, they literally came over the border with just a few grains of rice left. He'd have to, in order to gain speed from the Chinese who were hard on their heels, he'd have to leave behind all his books, all his writings. And they came into, um, they crossed the border with, with nothing. Um, and they were just in time uh, to... Uh, attend the um, funeral um, of, uh, of his teacher. They arrived in Sikkim just in time to perform the cremation because he died um, in 1959. 
Um, but remarkably, um, what Dilgo Kensei wrote is, a beautiful country is a dreamlike illusion. It's senseless to cling to it. Unless the inner forces of negative emotions are conquered, strife with outer enemies will never end. So you get the impression from reading about his life that um, having to leave Tibet and uh, a quite comfortable life and and end up a a penniless refugee in no way um, impacted on his his spiritual practice or his positivity. Um, So he... To begin with, he stayed in the um, Kalimpong and Darjeeling region, and that's where he met a number of other great lamas, including um, Dajin Rinpoche, who's another of uh, Sanguach's teachers. This is, sorry, this is Dilgo Kensei, by the way. Um, And obviously it was in 1959 when he was in the the Kalimpong region that he he met Sanguach's, and I'll come back to that. Um, At the request of the royal family of Bhutan, he went to live there and he started off as a school teacher and then he gradually um, got um, more and more disciples. Um, And he also became one of the main teachers of the Dalai Lama uh, and he passed on most of the main Nyingmapa teachings to the Dalai Lama and frequently went to um, Dharmasala to uh, meet and uh, discuss and teach the Dalai Lama. Um, In 1975, he started to travel and come to the West. I think mainly in France, mainly in Europe. I don't think he came to this country very much. Um, And I don't know if he particularly went to the States, but he certainly visited Europe quite regularly. Um, And in 1980, he decided to build a second Shechen monastery. That was his um, original monastery back in Kham, at Bodhanath in Nepal. So um, he supervised the building of that monastery, uh, which was um, built to very high standards and uh, with a lot of attention to detail over the next few years. And uh, there's a very beautiful uh, monastery there now next to the... You've probably seen pictures of the big stupa at Bodenath. It's the sort of enormous one with the um, eyes. In 1985, um, he was able to return to Tibet um, and uh, to, to the uh, ruins of Setchen in Kham. And obviously that was a very um, moving uh, journey. Um, And during that visit, he requested permission to restore Same Monastery, which is one of the main uh, Tibetan monasteries. And um, so during the next few years, he raised money for this. And by 1990, the main temple had been restored. And then in 1991, after a short period of ill health, he died in Bhutan. So that's the kind of um, bare bones of his life. 
it was a life which was spent entirely in study, practice and teaching. All his efforts were directed towards preserving the Buddhist teachings. He was a gentle giant of a man and a great scholar. He always had a book, but he'd always be very happy to put it down when somebody came to visit him. He showed great kindness, great wisdom, dignity and a sense of humour. And his life was one of considerable achievement. I mean, in a way, he he covered sort of several lifetimes. He had an intense period as a sort of solitary yogi, um, meditating and studying. He built, supervised the building of one monastery and raised funds for the building of another. He travelled extensively um, to the West, and in his own part of uh, the Himalayas. So, um, yeah, he, he, he achieved a, an awful lot with his, with his life. Um, yes, yeah, so Sangha actually met him in 1959 when he just um, fled from Tibet. Um, and I'm just going to read you his impressions. He was a very gentle, very kindly person and a very great scholar. He was always reading. Whenever I went to see him, he always had a book in his hand, which he put aside as I entered. I used to study with him, and our relationship was always a teacher-pupil kind. I received many initiations from him, including the Amitabha initiation. He was a very humble, very unassuming person who never made much of a splash, who never looked for disciples. I must mention that both he and his wife, in fact the whole family, were very tall, at least six and a half feet. They were absolute giants. After he came out of Tibet, he was very, very poor. When I left Kalimpong for the West, I went to visit Dilgo Kense and his wife, and they gave me a a knife as a leaving present. This was all they had in their house to give me at that time. So yes, Sangharachita studied with him over a period of um, four or five years before he came to um, the West in uh, 1964. And... um, I suppose one of, the, one of the things that I associate with Dilgo Kense is, um, is Amitabha, which is the, one of the main, or one of the initiations that he gave, Sangharachita. And uh, Amitabha uh, feels as though it's, it's been a very significant figure for Sangharachita because he himself had his own particular vision of um, Amitabha, who is the Buddha of the West. And he's associated very much with um, love and compassion, as well as with meditation. So I think one of the um, main ways that Dilgo Kense has come to the attention of, or my attention and others, is through images. Because there's this very um, beautiful book, which some of you might have seen. 
uh, Journey to Enlightenment, which is full of wonderful images. And um, it's sort of, it's a biography of Dilgo Kensei. Well, it's more than a biography. It, it uh, has a lot of his teaching in it too. Um, there's also a video, which I can't remember what it's called. But anyway, there's a video about his life and uh, his first return to Tibet and so on. So there are a lot of very um, powerful uh, images of um, Dilgo Kensei. Uh, partly because one of his disciples is an extremely good photographer. Um, so this is um, the one that I, I sort of associate with uh, Amitabha because it's very, I don't know how much well you can see, but you can look at it later. It's very um, kindly. Uh, and yeah, he just, he just inspires huge amount of confidence I think um, he was a very big man in all, all senses not just the fact that he was so tall but he was just a very big man in, in all ways so um, he inspired a huge amount of confidence but he also feels very approachable some of um, Sangrachita's other teachers um, sort of Dajin Rinpoche for instance feel very um, regal and quite, um, well, sort of scary, or, you know, they're very formal. Uh, whether they're like that or not, I'm not sure. But Dilgo Kensei, to me, is very approachable. Um, so that's one of the um, things that I associate with him, is um, his, his love and his kindness and his connection with Amitabha. Then... Um, Something else I associate with him is um, he, had, he was very, very strongly devoted to both. He had two main teachers, and he was very, very strongly devoted to both of them. And he's written um, some very good books about um, guru yoga, which is the, the practice, the, the um, Tibetan meditation practice, where you bring your teacher to mind. And... Um, he writes very movingly about that. Um, he also writes extremely well about uh, visualisation. I think, I think that's the other thing about him is his, his teachings, well, the translations of his teachings, obviously he did all his teaching in Tibetan, but translations feel very accessible um, in a way that not all Tibetan teachers are. So, um, yes, that's... Uh, his sort of unerring faith in all his teachers, I think. And then the, the final and perhaps the main thing almost I associate with him is uh, the vastness of his mind. Um, you really feel, I really feel when uh, I read some of his teachings that I am encountering a mind that's sort of way beyond where I am. And that, for me, is, is um, it captured in, in this image, um, which is on the uh, cover of this book. Um, there's a sort of sense you get of him. He's just looking into a sort of vast um, landscape, really, uh, which is way beyond where I'm at. And there's another um, picture in here. Again, I'm sorry about this 
some of the people in the front will be able to see it. Um, you can look at it later. Uh, again, he's just sort of staring into staring into space. Isn't quite the quite capturing, but you know, there's this sense of him. He's just um, looking way beyond uh, where he is. Um, yeah. So the vastness of his mind. Um, so what I'd like to do, by way of conclusion, is. Um, I don't, I don't feel I can, uh, I can't talk about um, the vastness of Dilgo Kensi's mind. And, and he, did, he did put a huge amount of emphasis on training our mind because it's from the mind that actions of body and speech come. So, uh, okay, yeah. um, so, you know, that's what he said we all need to, to work on, is work on our minds. So um, what I'd like to ask you to do um, is just make yourself comfortable uh, as though you were meditating. And I'm going to read just three extracts from his teachings. And um, we'll have a sort of two or three minutes in between each one. So it's a bit of a sort of reflection, and uh, that's the end of my talk. When sunlight falls on a crystal, lights of all colours of the rainbow appear. Yet they have no substance that you can grasp. Likewise, all thoughts in their infinite variety, devotion, compassion, harmfulness, desire, are utterly without substance. This is the mind of the Buddha. There is no thought that is something other than voidness. If you recognize the void nature of thoughts, at the very moment they arise, they will dissolve. Attachment and hatred will never be able to disturb the mind. Deluded emotions will collapse by themselves. No negative actions will be accumulated, so no suffering will follow.
the mind dividing experience into subject and object first identifies with the subject, I, then with the idea of mine, and starts to cling to my body, my mind, and my name. As our attachment to these three notions grows stronger and stronger, we become more and more exclusively concerned with our own well-being. All our striving for comfort, our intolerance of life's annoying circumstances, our preoccupation with pleasure and pain, wealth and poverty, fame and obscurity, praise and blame, are due to this idea of I. We are usually so obsessed with ourselves that we hardly ever even think about the welfare of others. In fact, we are no more interested in others than a tiger is interested in eating grass. This is completely the opposite of the outlook of the Bodhisattva. The ego is really just a fabrication of thought. And when you realise that both the object grasped and the mind that grasps are void, it is easy to see that others are not different from yourself. All the energy we normally put into looking after ourselves, bodhisattvas put into looking after others. If a bodhisattva sees that by plunging into the fires of hell, he can help even a single being, he does it without an instant of hesitation, like a swan entering a cool lake.
the whole thrust of the Buddha's teaching is to master the mind. If you master the mind, you will have mastery over body and speech and of your own and others' suffering. And your own and others' suffering can only come to an end. But if you leave the mind full of negative emotions, then however perfect the actions of your body and the words you speak might seem, you are far from the path. Mastery of the mind is achieved through constant awareness of all your thoughts and actions. Check your mind over and over again, and as soon as negative thoughts arise, remedy them with the appropriate antidotes. When positive thoughts arise, reinforce them by dedicating the merit they bring, wishing that all sentient beings be established in ultimate enlightenment. Maintaining this constant mindfulness in the practices of tranquility and insight, you will eventually be able to sustain the recognition of wisdom, even in the midst of ordinary activities and distractions. Mindfulness is thus the very basis, the cure for all samsaric afflictions. The practice of Dharma should bring you to the point where you can maintain the same constant awareness, whether in or out of practice sessions. This is the quintessential point of all spiritual instruction. Without it, however many mantras and prayers you recite, however many thousands of prostrations and circumambulations you do, as long as your mind remains distracted, none of it will help to get rid of your obscuring emotions. Never forget this most crucial point.
We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 